Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so this has been a really interesting week because this is the first week where I kind of implemented this new schedule change and I had more time to get more research and work done and it was actually quite, quite interesting but different, <laughs> uh, but in a good way. <laughs> Um, I hope that you guys uh, checked out the podcast that I posted yesterday. It is about the Nation of Islam and Scientology, and mostly about the Nation of Islam, because uh, there's some background and information about that group that I thought people should be made aware of that I have not seen talked about anywhere else when this comes up in regards to its connection with Scientology. So uh, there's been a lot of good positive comments and feedback on that podcast already, so if you haven't checked that out, please do so. I put a lot of work into that to give the full, or at least give a good uh, amount of information about the background and beliefs of the Nation of Islam and its very bizarre relationship with Scientology. So we have some great questions this week, so let's go ahead and just get right into it. Steve Wood. If everything LRH said or wrote was, in effect, law, and the final word on the subject, how can you explain that OT8 was issued, and when it was deemed a disaster, a new version appeared, yet LRH had been dead for two years? How on earth can that happen, as clearly Hubbard didn't write it, Miscavige did? How did he get the okay to rewrite the words of LRH? Okay, so um, interesting question, Steve. And uh, how this works is David Miscavige took over Scientology in 1986 after Hubbard died, and he sort of staged a coup d'etat and, and took over the Religious Technology Center and has been running Scientology single-handedly as its dictator ever since. And because he's at the top of the food chain, anything David Miscavige says or wants basically is what goes in, in the world of Scientology. Uh, the Sea Org is what really runs Scientology, that, that group of about four or 5,000 folks who are absolutely fanatically dedicated and loyal to David Miscavige, first and foremost, and, and senior to anything else. So if David Miscavige, the, the way the indoctrination works when somebody comes into the Sea Org, comes into Scientology, really, but especially in the Sea Org, is that you are given uh, the what for very, very quickly that David Miscavige's word is law. Uh, Hubbard is supposed to be the one on whose authority Miscavige's word counts, right? Miscavige is supposed to get his authority from the works of L. Ron Hubbard, and in many, many ways he does. But when there's something in Hubbard's work that David Miscavige wants to change or disagrees with or has a problem or issue with, he'll just change it. Now, within the world of Scientology and the Sea Org, David Miscavige has a lapel pin, which indicates that he has been awarded, I forgot what the name of the award was, I'm sorry, but it was uh, a, a card that he was issued and this lapel pin that, that indicates that anything he says, he might as well be L. Ron Hubbard speaking, okay? He speaks for L. Ron Hubbard. Now, I don't know when these things came around. They were part of what we learned about in the uniform when we were learning about how the uniforms and the ranks and ratings work in the Sea Org. So I learned about this pen, and then I was told there were only, you know, a, a small handful of people 
who actually were given this thing. I was told specifically that David Miscavige had one, Norman Starkey had one, he's the executor, uh, a trustee of L. Ron Hubbard's estate, um, but he's completely under the thumb of David Miscavige, as are all Sea Org members. So if Miscavige felt the need to justify to anybody that he has full authority to speak for L. Ron Hubbard and do whatever it is that he wants to do with, with Scientology, he could always just pull out that card and that little, you know, that little piece of uh, rank that he's got, and that would be it. That would be the end of that conversation. But David Miscavige doesn't even need to rationalize or justify himself to any Scientologist because they don't question him. And that's really where his authority comes from. And that's why there's this, that's why I, I describe a, a cult relationship, a destructive cult relationship, as a codependent relationship. Because the leader needs the followers to give him the power and authority that he gets over them, to lord over them. And they have to, in turn, give him that authority and let him run with it. And that's what they do because they're, uh, you know, through coercive persuasion and, and through lies and deceit and all that, they are convinced that this cult leader is, you know, the be-all, end-all of existence. And that is definitely what Scientologists and what Sea Org members think, is that David Miscavige is the, the cat's meow, man. He's like the, the bee's knees. He's you know, the, the, the epitome of what Scientology is supposed to be all about. So they're more than happy to have David Miscavige say and do whatever he wants. Um, there's a lot of other reasons for this too. I mean, in terms of why Scientologists would accept anything David Miscavige says. But let's just, let's just go on the premise that they do. So Miscavige doesn't let everybody know that when he makes changes, he's grossly altering L. Ron Hubbard's works. He just puts it out and says, this new revision of what I'm now giving you is what Hubbard wanted. And the earlier version we found was incorrect, the earlier version that was published that all you guys were studying and reading and paying money for, that was incorrect because some transcriptionist or some suppressive person or some editor or whatever, some, you know, jerk, altered L. Ron Hubbard's actual words. And Miscavige is the one who figured out, corrected it, and has now reissued it, and now it is exactly as L. Ron Hubbard intended. That is how David Miscavige routinely rationalizes massive revisions and changes to Hubbard's works. And Scientologists accept it. They do not question this. If the, the ones who do end up leaving Scientology because they start seeing behind the curtain and they start figuring out that this is not Hubbard's work anymore, this is Miscavige's work, and they don't really like that, and they start noticing other things that are wrong, and you know, slowly or quickly they end up leaving. And that's where a lot of exes, you know, ex-Scientologists have come from because they, uh, they saw Miscavige as the corrupter of Scientology. And then once they finally leave, they start getting all the information and for the most part learn that Hubbard himself was actually very, very corrupt too. So anyway, that's kind of the long answer to that. I hope that um, makes sense and, and answers your question. Thanks for asking. Mark P. When I was in Scientology back in the early 1970s, St. Hill orgs had several things that were unique to them. Delivery of power and power plus, grades 5 and 5a. 
the briefing course, Class 6 Auditor, and Class 7 Auditor training. From what I know now, Grade 5 is Dianetic Auditing, often resulting in clear. If Dianetic clear is achieved, then the next step is for the confirmed clear at an advanced org to do OT1. Also, as I understand it, the briefing course is no longer offered to non-Sea Org public. If this is true, what do the St. Hill Orgs do these days? Okay, well, quite a bit of Scientology is there, so if you guys have been following my channel for any length of time or for a while, then you'll probably understand a lot of that question, but to decipher it, basically he's asking about um, a, a higher level org or service, service delivery facility in Scientology is called an org or organization or church. And St. Hill orgs or class six orgs are Sea Org delivery facilities. So they're manned up by Sea Org members and they deliver advanced level training and auditing. Uh, the advanced organizations or the AOs are also advanced Scientology or sorry, Sea Org delivery units. Uh, public go and pay for the services and the Sea Org delivers it to them. Um, the local city-level churches are not manned by Sea Org members, they're manned by staff members who are just regular Scientologists who sign a five-year or two-and-a-half-year contract to work at them. All right, so the, um, the St. Hill Orgs are basically Class 5 Orgs now, except that they can deliver um, the Power and Power Plus. That's really the only difference between what St. Hill Orgs are doing now and what Class 5 Orgs are doing now. There, there used to be that all these other services that they delivered. They delivered the uh, St. Hill Special Briefing Course, which is the biggest, longest, most extensive course in all of Scientology. It takes a year full-time to get through it. This course has been lying dormant for many, many years because it needs to be revised to bring it up to speed with all the other releases that David Miscavige has put out over the last many years. Um, when he put out those new releases, all under the umbrella or banner of the Golden Age of Tech Phase 2, that release was a big release and it revised all kinds of things. Uh, and the St. Hill Special Briefing course, therefore, was affected because it relies on all these lower-level services before you get to the briefing course. So basically, all the public who were on the briefing course got kicked off of it to go back and do all these newly revised services. And in, the, in all this time that they've been doing that, Miscavige hasn't seen to it that the briefing course itself gets revised and, and put out. Um, so it's another service that he's, that he's just sort of sitting on that eventually will come out and there will be a lot of fanfare and it'll cost a lot of money and people will pay for that, you know, in Scientology and it'll be the latest and greatest thing. But right now it's just laying dormant and nobody's really doing much with it because they can't because of these, because of what I just explained. So the Sea Org, the, the class six orgs, which are supposed to be, you know, the public go to their city-level churches like Detroit or Denver or Milan, Italy or something, like these city-level churches, they go all the way up to clear and then they go to the St. Hill Org and they're supposed to get, you know, higher-level auditing and be able to do this higher-level training. That, that, like I said, that hasn't been the case. And so the Sea Org, St. Hill Orgs, have just been glorified Class 5 Orgs for all this, all this time. 
and um, and if all that Scientology is what's really really too intense and heavy for you then just go take a look at my Scientology's uh, organizational madness video where I break down the entire organizational structure of Scientology and then after you watch that everything I just said will probably make a lot more sense uh, otherwise I'm, I'm sorry but it's just a lot of a lot of geeky Scientology stuff in that question. So thanks, Mark, for asking about that, and uh, let's go on with the next one now. William Quigley. Right after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, my wife asked me, why are the Jews so hated? I'm ashamed to say that I didn't have an answer for her. I don't know why the Jews are so hated. So why are the Jews so hated? Okay, well, this isn't a loaded question. <laughs> um... Okay, I, you know, there's a, this is a, this is kind of a big topic, it's kind of a big, huge subject, but, you know, I'm just going to say from my own understanding, from what I've learned about, you know, the big wide world and, and the Jewish people's uh, role and, and, and occupation in it over the many, many millennia that they've been around, um, there's been a lot of misunderstandings, there's been a lot of um, what we would call black propaganda or false propaganda, false malicious information spread about Jewish people over the centuries. Um, they were blamed for uh, the, the death of Jesus Christ uh, or Jesus the Christ um, because of, you know, the whole, the way the whole story lays, uh, breaks down. They were the ones who ratted him out. They were the ones who were complaining about him. They were the ones who uh, saw to it that he was persecuted or prosecuted and persecuted and eventually um, crucified and, and, and killed. Uh, now, of course, that was all part of God's big plan according to Christianity, so why they would blame the Jews for that when it's all part of the big master plan anyway doesn't really make a lot of sense, but if you're looking for rationality and sense in most of these religious stories, you're not going to find it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of big on tolerating other people's beliefs, but I'm going to say that I will ridicule them 24-7 because a lot of these beliefs are pretty ridiculous. That's my personal view about it. Um, but I'm not going to say that, you know, just because people have beliefs that they should stop having those beliefs if they don't want to or whatever. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a complicated thing. But as far as the Jews go, this is one of the biggest reasons why, through history, they've been scapegoated for Christ's death. The other factor that actually precedes all of that and, um, and has carried on all the way to, present, to the present is that the Jewish people, for whatever reason, have tended to um, be associated with money and finance, money lenders, um, you know, bankers, uh, international bankers. I mean, you have the Rothschilds. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the Jewish community has not been, um, well, it's very well known for this, uh, for being involved in finance. And when you don't have money, then you tend to direct your ire and hate towards those who do. Uh, there's jealousy, there's class warfare, there's actual persecution of lower classes by upper classes and abuses in economic systems. And these, all of these have created a tangled web of, of nonsense over the centuries that have also implicated Jewish people in wrongdoing that they sometimes were guilty of and sometimes were not. 
So it's a mixed bag, right? But you get this reputation, and the reputation goes on and on and on, and the stereotypes develop from that, and the prejudices develop from that, and they just, you know, they just become so ingrained in societies that uh, anti-Semitism becomes a habit. And unfortunately, in many parts of the world, in the Middle East, in Europe, and in America, um, anti-Semitism has had its time, there have been time periods where it has been very, very strong. Um, post, you know, previous to uh, World War II and the Holocaust, uh, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism all throughout Europe. There was no country in Europe that was, uh, that I'm aware of that was uh, innocent of this. Um, Jews were not people who were wanted in lots and lots of places, not just Nazi Germany. This is one of the reasons why Nazi Germany was able to get away with what they were, what Hitler was able to get away with. Because like, for example, there were people trying to get away from there, coming to the States, famously, there's that ship that showed up with a bunch of Jewish people on it that got turned back. Because America had its own anti-Semitism problem back then and its own immigration paranoia as well. It's not just a modern problem that we have immigration issues and prejudices getting in the way. Of, of, of how we deal with people who want to immigrate to America or people who are refugees who are trying to get away from truly murderous, bad situations and come to the United States hoping to find, you know, sanctuary. Uh, well, that hasn't always been available and, and anti-Semitism has been one of the reasons for that. Uh, I'm not trying to give an entire, you know, full, detailed uh, historical breakdown here. I'm just kind of talking in broad strokes. but. Um, but that's been a thing. So, so the money issue has been a thing. The religious scapegoating has been a thing. Um, and those have just kind of carried on over the centuries. And I, I think that's pretty much how I would want to just kind of encapsulate the answer that way. I hope that answers your question uh, there. Nixie. I just stumbled on something called Writers of the Future, a science fiction and fantasy writing contest started by Hubbard in the early 1980s. Apparently, it's an annual affair, and each year an anthology of winning works is published under the title L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future. Looks like 34 volumes have been released to date. What, if anything, have you heard about it during your time in Scientology? All right, Writers of the Future contest. There's been a lot written about this, a lot of controversy about it, because it's been considered as a kind of uh, dissemination event for Scientology. And kind of, you know, uh, I, the, the Writers of the Future contest and that and all the administration of it and everything having to do with it is dealt with by Author Services International, which is the uh, organization that is not really supposed to be part of the Church of Scientology, but it is manned with Sea Org members. So obviously it's all about Scientology. Um, but Author Services is an organization that acts as Hubbard's literary agent for all of his fiction works. So it's not really officially connected with Scientology directly. The mission statement of uh, Author Services, or ASI, uh, has to do with promoting L. Ron Hubbard as a fiction writer and through that promotion getting people interested in who L. Ron Hubbard was, what his works were all about, and from going and bridging from the fiction work to the nonfiction Scientology work, okay? 
That's the mainline purpose of ASI, in addition, of course, to the other primary mainline purpose, which is make money through selling Hubbard's extensive library of, of fiction works. The Writers of the Future contest was something Hubbard suggested be put together, or wanted put together, because he wanted a avenue to give back to the writing community. Hubbard was a writer, and in the, at the end of the day, uh, Hubbard took real pride in his uh, ability and, um, and body of work as a writer. He was a prolific writer. I don't happen to like his fiction works, but a lot of people out there do. Um, and he was truly a popular writer uh, from the golden age of science fiction. He was also prolific in many, many different fields of writing. He wrote romance, adventure, western, spy, espionage stories, um, you know, in addition to science fiction and fantasy works. So, I mean, you could find almost anything subject-wise under or genre-wise under Hubbard's name or one of his many, many pseudonyms. Uh, that's all true. You know, the church talks about that. They promote that. But it's, it's true that I haven't found many, many lies that the church has told in connection with Hubbard's um, as a writer, as a fiction writer. Um, so the contest was put together by Hubbard as a way to try to help young authors, new, you know, just kind of trying to get started, trying to get going, not really heavily published yet. How do you help those guys along? Well, Hubbard wrote a lot of um, articles and, and, and uh, suggestions and advices for writers on how to write. Those Issues and, and information were compiled in the packs of, of um, well, in the, in the packs, and the uh, people who submit to the Writers of the Future contest, they get um, judged by actual professional writers, not Sea Org staff. And if they, of course, I'm sure that the filtering process involves making sure that these people are not critical of Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard and have not been posting horrible things about him. I'm sure they filter them to that degree. But what they're literally looking for, um, the, the professional judges of the contest are looking for actual skill in writing. So they choose, you know, winners. They have an illustrator contest, the, the writers of the future and the illustrators of the future. And they'll use and they'll play on both of those and the, the illustrators will do pictures for the anthology works and the writers of course write all the stories. And they put all these together in these collections and they've been doing it for decades now. And really in the end I don't know that there's a whole lot that's really super nefarious or creepy about it. A lot of authors who uh, took part in the contest have been interviewed or talked to about it, said, hey, did you know about the Scientology connection? Sometimes they get through the entire contest and don't even realize that it's connected to Scientology. Uh, so that kind of tells you that during the process of submitting their stories, being judged, going to the final event, going through the seminar and workshop where they read about all of Hubbard's stuff and get some, get some tutoring and mentoring from professional writers, during that whole process, there's not a lot of, of work being done on them to try to get them into Scientology. It's mostly a goodwill gesture on the part of Scientology and a part of L. Ron Hubbard uh, to try to help you know, young writers out. I know that that is all 
kind of the PR line or the shore story that Scientology uses. But in this particular case, I happen to think that it's mostly true. So, um, you know, if somebody were to come into that contest and start asking about Scientology and wondering about it, I am positive they'd answer all the person's questions and try to get him to do, you know, do a personality test and, and get on board with Scientology. But that's, that, I think, it would be the exception, not the rule. I think they mainly leave these writers alone to just kind of do the contest and try to generate goodwill and good PR for Scientology and for L. Ron Hubbard through this work. So that's what I can tell you about it. And everything I just said, I learned while I was in Scientology. This is not new information to me. We talked about this all the time. I actually, because I was in LA, I went over to author services and um, heard some readings and stories uh, over there. I've been in that building and, uh, and I think that's what they're up to. So that's what I can tell you about that. And there you go. Gordon Weir. We know about Scientology's claims to reduce drug use, crime, etc., but do they do anything to help their fellow man in even the simplest of ways? Food kitchens, slash pantries, toy drives, clothes drives, Habitat for Humanity. The only thing I can think of is to grease the palms of some police departments with donations. For that matter, can you think of anything Hubbard did that was positive along these same lines? Well, um, local Scientology churches or orgs will do food drives and they will do toy drives. I've seen that happen in Minnesota. I saw it happen in Los Angeles, Orange County, um, Seattle. I saw that. So, yes, they do do some of those kinds of, of charitable work, but that's about all they do. They all, oh, sorry, they also do street cleanups. They try to, you know, promote the good name of Scientology or the way to happiness or, you know, one of the front groups of Scientology by doing some kind of community service type activities. But they generally are not super well organized. It takes a lot of work to keep them going. Um, Scientologists are not really big on doing community service or charity work. Um, they're really kind of big on themselves more so. They're pretty selfish people for the most part, but you do see these kind of um, stabs or efforts at charity during, mostly during the holiday season or if there's some specific local event happening and the local Office of Special Affairs person wants to get the org, you know, to contribute or do something about it because it will somehow generate goodwill for Scientology, or at least that's the, that's the goal of doing that kind of work, is, oh, Scientology, good guys, because they're helping with this food drive, charity, street cleanup, etc., right? Um, there is, uh, there's also mentoring and literacy programs that are real. They do exist. They're tiny, you know. I don't know that they help a whole lot of people, but they do have those um, areas. For example, I believe it still exists, I could be wrong, but for many, many years, right across the street from the Hollywood Guarantee Building on Sunset Boulevard, no, Hollywood Boulevard, sorry, my bad, on right across the street from that building, that Scientology-owned building, is a literacy mentoring place where, you, where kids can go and get some tutoring on how to read and stuff. So there's, you know, there's things like that uh, here and there. Um, this is not a sustained effort. This is not a really heavily invested in effort by Scientology. I've never seen Scientology International throw money down the line to, you know, to, uh, to make these things happen. 
Uh, they always rely on, you know, parishioner donations or money from Tom Cruise, for example, for that reading center. Um, so, you know, so David Miscavige isn't really into spending money on any of this, but if, if individual parishioners want to do something about it or local orgs want to do something about it, well, that's, that's kind of their job to do that, and, and they do so. Uh, let's see, anything else? In terms of Hubbard, no, I can't really speak too much to Hubbard's charitable contributions or anything. He always talked a big talk, but I don't know what the guy really did that was so useful or helpful to other people. I mean, he, you know, he, he developed Dianetics and Scientology. I guess that was supposed to be useful and helpful, but <laughs> not really. So, um, yeah, so that's pretty much all I can say on that. I think that gives you a pretty good idea of what's going on in the charities and, and, and community service within Scientology. All right, it is time for Flash Answers. Couch. Since you are now in a bigger place, are you going to get your cat Seven a baby brother or sister? My cat Bo, the cat in my avatar, asked me to ask you. No, we have no plans whatsoever to get another cat. Seven is a very lone ranger, and um, he's had other cats in his past that he has gotten along with and not gotten along with. And we've decided that, no, we're just going to stay with the one. That's, uh, that's pretty much our speed at this point. Adam Peterson. Back in the 90s, my best friend's mother ran a company that contracted out massage therapists to a number of the big resorts in Phoenix. John Travolta was a frequent guest at one of them and was eventually banned from getting in-room massages because he kept sexually harassing the male therapists. He kept asking them to rub his connectors, referring to his testicles. This, to me, has always sounded like Scientology's. Is connectors a term used among Scientologists to refer to the testicles? Or is this just a Travolta thing? I'm dead serious. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, no, that is not Scientology's. That's not Scientology's language. There's nothing that has nothing to do with Scientology. That is 1,000% a John Travolta-ism uh, connectors. That's actually kind of funny to me. Anyway, um, no, never heard of that until you asked me that question. So whatever John Travolta's got going on there, it's, uh, that's not a Scientology thing. Sydney Whittle. We all know that OSA monitors all the supporter groups, all the blogs, books, articles, etc. I was wondering if you know if any of these agents have had a needle prick put into their bubble after reading all the stories. Sort of like what you did when you started checking out the internet. Do you know if any of these people have had second thoughts about their beliefs and maybe left the Sea Org and eventually the church? Nope. I've never heard of anybody that that, that happened to, be, from OSA specifically. Never heard of any person from OSA uh, reading that information and going, ooh, gee, wow, wait a minute, what? Uh, usually the route out for somebody in Scientology is to have something actually happen to them that kind of wakes them up and snaps them out of the, the, the cognitive dissonance that they've been in, uh, where they've been resolving the dissonance by, you know, just kind of ignoring anything anti-Scientology and focusing and concentrating on what Hubbard or Miscavige says. Um, but if something happens to them or to somebody they love or know or that matters to them, then that usually kind of goes, what? Oh, yeah, whoa, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Reading anti-Scientology material uh, for people who are trained to do that, and there are only a few of them, um, that doesn't really, 
seem to penetrate the armor from anything that I've ever seen or heard of. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me ramble on here. And to answer your questions, please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section here on YouTube. I see everything eventually. I add the questions to my queue, and, um, and I hope to eventually get to all of them. We've been doing a lot of shows here, a lot more shows to go into the future, and so just keep your questions coming. All right, guys, happy holidays, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.